This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. We had several leaks. One of the leaks that uh, was was very frequent. It was coming again and again. It happened because the boiler of the flat above ours was damaged and it was leaking constantly. It doesn't really add up. If you're renting now and earn the average income, more than a quarter of what you earn is going on rent. More than a third if you live in London. If you're earning less, it's an even bigger chunk of your income. And it's not just a question of how affordable or unaffordable it is to rent. Nearly a quarter of homes in the private rental sector in England fail what's called the decent living standard, which sets out what tenants can expect, including a kitchen with adequate space and a bathroom that's 30 years old or less. Private rented housing is also more likely to have problems with damp than any other kind of housing. And what happened when you complained about this? Oh, nothing. <laughs> I completely ignored I'm Jeevan Varsaga from Tortoise, and this is Making Sense of Social Housing, Episode 2, The Crisis in Our Rental Sector. The big change in Britain's housing market over the last few decades is how many more of us are renting from private landlords. We're building a lot fewer houses than we used to, and an even smaller amount of social housing. What that means is that people who might have qualified for social housing in the past are now tenants, paying more for the roof over their heads, with much less security. Alexandra Rodriguez, a PhD student, moved to London from the Canary Islands in 2015. She loved it. It's London. It's a city like no other. She persuaded her partner to come to London and got a job as a science technician at a secondary school. She and her partner Jamie moved home after the first Covid lockdown, when they'd be living in a one-bedroom flat. Like many people, they were desperate for more space, and they found a place in Kingston which had two bedrooms. It was £1,325 a calendar month, a rent they thought reasonable at first. There was a day that was raining a lot, it was raining heavily and there were strong winds as well. And we didn't know it at that time, but apparently the roof was all covered in moss and the moss blocked the gutters and the pipes and all that water had to come out somewhere. And it did through one of the lamps in the hallway. So in in just seconds, we had a big paddle, a lot of water on the floor. The leak in their hallway turned out to be the first of many problems. Water leaked constantly, Alexandra Rodriguez says, from the boiler of the flat above hers. So they try, apparently they tried to repair it several times, but the problem was still happening. So we had that this big leak that completely damaged 
one side of the wall. I just imagine that that wall in in one of the bedrooms, um, all the wall was completely damp. It was hard to get the lettings agency to pay attention, so they contacted the landlord directly. The problems got fixed, but it took a while. We heard also that all the neighbours were having similar problems as well, and they felt completely ignored. We ended up thinking that they only cared about the money we were paying and not the conditions of the flat itself. Then, one night after they'd been in the flat about two years, the smoke alarms went off in the whole building. The fire brigade came out, but there was no fire. The system was faulty and needed to be reset. The tenants let the landlord and letting agency know. An engineer came out, but wasn't able to get access to all the flats to fix the problem. There are four households in that building. So we complained all at the same time. And it was then when we all got that uh, Section 21 eviction notice at the same time. So we were all evicted. What, what we received was an email from the letting agency saying that the landlord wanted to gain possession of his own property. And we were going to be um, served with that eviction notice. And then the next day, we received a message from the landlord saying that if we wanted to stay, we had to pay more in rent and he wanted £1,800 per month. Did you have any communication with the landlord about this? Did you ask him to explain what, why you were being evicted? I did send him a message. Uh, he said that it was a nothing. It was just because the uh, prices around were going up and he thought it was good for him to put the prices up as well. Alexandra Rodriguez and her partner moved out rather than pay more. But it wasn't easy finding somewhere else to live in London. There were dozens of people waiting to view each rental property. The right-to-buy policy that we heard about in episode one was meant to help Britain become a property-owning democracy. But the contraction of social housing and the wide gap between house prices and average incomes, in some cases buying a home will cost 12 times average incomes, has pushed people into renting later in life. This is Cara Pacitti, Senior Economist at the Resolution Foundation. We've seen really big increases in the number of households with children who are still living in the private rented sector rather than being homeowners at the point they have, have kids. In the UK, that's a problem because of the levels of insecurity that a tenant in the private sector faces. We have things like Section 21 evictions. People can be evicted at very short notice. That's obviously not ideal if you're a longer-term renter or a family in the private rented sector, which is maybe less of a problem in some of these other countries where it's more of a societal norm that you rent later into life. Current housing legislation allows landlords to evict tenants without a reason through a Section 21 notice, which gives people two months to leave their homes. A bill to end this is going through Parliament and got its second reading, an important step, last October. But the ban on no-fault evictions will be delayed until improvements aimed at speeding up the court system are in place. Clearly, not everyone renting privately has a bad experience, of course. In fact, many tenants are happy with the properties they live in and have a good relationship with their landlords. That's the case now for Alexandra Rodriguez and her partner, who've moved out of the Kingston flat and are renting a house further out in south-west London. They have a garden and can keep a cat for the first time, though it now takes her 90 minutes getting to work compared to 40 minutes when she lived in Kingston. When she looks back on her time there, she's unexpectedly cheerful. We had a very good sense of community with the other neighbours in the same building. We somehow, because we were all having the same kind of problems, we helped each other. It was all we had, actually. This one time, for example, when we had this massive leak after that 
day of heavy rain, they came to my flat and they helped me wipe the floor. Britain's housing market is out of kilter with what society needs. Long term, the solution is to build more houses, especially for people on the lowest incomes. But there are short term measures that might ease some of the pressure. I became a landlord in the way that most people do, actually. The first thing was that I got engaged and then moved in with my then fiancé and had a flat that was spare, if you like, and I decided that I wanted to keep it rather than sell it, so I rented it out. And that's the way that most, actually the majority of landlords come about. Susan Actimel is the founder of Homes for Good, a lettings agency based in Glasgow. It's not like most lettings agencies. But then in 2000, I decided to create a portfolio of housing as a a sort of long-term pension plan, which again is something else that a lot of people have done in the last couple of decades. So I was definitely part of the the buy-to-let boom, if you like, in the first decade, from 2000 to 2008. She wasn't happy with her lettings agent, and she found that other landlords had similar concerns about their agents. Not getting rents paid in time, you know, having to chase to get the rent payments, not being told about repairs or not being told that tenants were moving out. So it was this unpredictability and poor communication. And what I also saw when I got in direct contact with my tenants, that they had similar concerns of a lack of communication, repairs not getting done quickly and actually a sense of fear that they weren't sure how long they were going to be able to live in the property. So the things that I experienced as a landlord, when I then did my research and business planning for Homes for Good, I realised that my experience was common, and that gave me the confidence that there was something different that needed to happen. Susan Actimel set up Homes for Good in 2013, starting with the 45 properties that she owned. There are now 580 properties on the agency's books, mostly in Glasgow. The idea is to make the rental market work better for both landlord and tenant. But say, you know, maybe 40 to 50% of private rented sector properties are managed by a letting agent. So the letting Mm. agent is the middleman. So that can be a really good thing or it can be a really difficult thing. We want it to be a good thing. So... We see our role as being the conduit that keeps the tenant in a happy home and, and keeps the landlord's investment safe. But we're also there, for example, if the tenant wants a repair done and the landlord doesn't feel that that repair is necessary, we can intervene in the middle and say it is actually a necessary repair that you need to do or we can manage the tenant's expectations if it's perhaps not something that the landlord should be expected to do. Homes for Good doesn't work by relying on landlords' altruism. Well, first of all, the property determines the rent level. That's the first thing. So if a landlord has a property in an area where the market rent is way above housing benefit level, then we're not going to ask that landlord to rent it at a social, you know, at the social level. That that wouldn't work. But it is increasingly the case, Susan Actimel says, that landlords are attracted by a more ethical business model. We wouldn't ask a landlord to rent their property at a below market rate. We, we wouldn't ask that. That's not what we're here to do. We're here to improve the quality of service for landlords and tenants. We do have a, a number of landlords and an increasing number of landlords who come to us with a property and say, 
I want you to rent this out at the housing benefit level or at a lower rent, and they've got specific reasons that are altruistic, as you say, for doing that. And we will, of course, do that. So we do have a cluster of properties that are like that, but that's not what we ask for. It's up to the landlord to want to do that. We wouldn't push the landlord into feeling obliged to do that. It wouldn't work. Homes for Good is launching in London as a joint venture with Crisis, supported by Lloyd's Banking Group. We've been working with Crisis now around standards in the private rented sector since 2014, really since we started. And in the last couple of years in particular, we had identified that we wanted to replicate the Homes for Good model, which is around creating supply for people on lower incomes, but also creating quality of service for landlords and tenants across the private rented sector. What do you think is the difference for you in terms of operating in Scotland and operating in London? I identified very early on in the the replication approach that we wanted to take for Homes for Good that London was going to be our target. And everybody said to me, that's the hardest place in the country to operate in the private rented sector. And my response was, that's exactly why we want to do it, is where there is the most need. So what I see in London, and and we've done a lot of research with Crisis, and we've been very involved in scoping the market and having a look, we see a market that is completely unsustainable and completely unreachable for the vast majority of the population. There's there's a misery in the private rented sector in London that has to change. Their rents are not affordable. People can't have decent lives with the rents that, that there are in London because so much of their income is having to go on rent levels. And we hear stories about quality that you would never see in Scotland that would be all over the papers all the time. You know, it, there's a level of quality in some of the private rented sector that is just accepted that that's what you have to put up with because you've got no choice. The housing crisis has been a spur to innovation in other ways. In Liverpool, I visited a mix of apartments and townhouses being built by housing association Taurus Homes on a former industrial site by the Leeds Liverpool Canal. Tenants here will pay rent at 80% of the market rate with the idea that this will allow them to save for a deposit and they get first refusal on buying the flat they live in if it comes up for sale. It's openly aimed at young professionals. Here's Steve Coffey, Chief Executive of Taurus. And maybe they can't buy the property at the moment, but set down those routes and, and build up that deposit. People have got to have the ability to get a mortgage ultimately. As the availability of social housing has shrunk over time, it's a sector that's become more focused on the most vulnerable in society. That wasn't always the case. Post-war, council housing as it was then was desirable housing at that that point in time. And people, and we had the slum clearances in the old major cities, sort of post-war. And and that council housing then was the aspirational housing for for everyone and what people wanted. And uh, over time, what happened then, we had mixed communities as well within that. So yes, there might have been people who were less off than others, but people lived cheek by jowl in those, those areas. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. 
Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. With growing waiting lists for social housing and councils spending millions on temporary housing, new solutions are emerging. Some of them appear to be quite innovative, albeit short-term. There are now more than 100 households across the country living in solo house units. These are steel-framed and steel-walled units that are designed to be easily moved, and they're being used by councils in Cornwall and London to house people on waiting lists who would otherwise find themselves in emergency accommodation. This is Rory Lowings, project manager for Solo House at the housing developer Hill. It has a similar sort of boxy profile to a shipping container, but although it has a, a superficial resemblance to it, it's, it's in reality an awful lot stronger and obviously designed to be a dwelling. We wanted it to be mobile like that because we wanted it to be deployable to lots of different locations in the UK to be a long-lasting and sort of resilient asset. A solar house is eight metres long by four metres wide with cement cladding on its steel skeleton. One large window at the front and a small one at the back. It's a self-contained home with a fitted kitchen, bathroom, living room and bedroom. It obviously isn't intended as a long-term home. We've always delivered the solo house as a form of stepping stone accommodation between what is generally described as temporary accommodation, that is to say the sorts of shared houses and kind of hotel rooms and bed and breakfast that we now increasingly see as being what people get when they present as homeless and there is in fact capacity to take them off the street by a local authority, they will often be given that form of temporary accommodation. It's designed to sit between that and a permanent form of accommodation that at some point they will be in a financial position to move on to one one uh, expects and we, we, one hopes. But the point is at the moment there isn't an awful lot of that kind of accommodation around where you, you are either in a very precarious position where you effectively don't have a private address and it's very difficult to stabilize a kind of uh, lifestyle where you, where you don't have a permanent address. And in that sort of case, what people often need is privacy and individual security and their own letterbox and so on. But the need for this kind of help to get a foot back on the ladder has only come about because the stability that the private sector or social housing once provided has crumbled away. And for a lot of people, the housing situation has become quite unstable. I think that's probably the reality of it. And there's now a need for this product in a way there might well not have been, or certainly wouldn't have been 70 years ago and, and possibly not even 40 years ago. Of course, as Rory Lowings says, this is only intended to be a stepping stone. But some may worry that hard-pressed councils could increasingly come to rely on this kind of solution. We've just heard some potential solutions which could mitigate some of the worst impacts of the housing crisis at a local level. But what needs to happen to make housing work better across a whole city? On your radio, the sound of West Yorkshire is BBC Radio Leeds. With the latest BBC News, I'm Clive Settle. Kevin the basic equation is if, if your city grows, both economically and in housing terms, then business rates grow, council tax grows, and you can provide more public services. Tom Reardon is chief executive of Leeds City Council. Leeds has a fast-growing population. We're a fifth of households live in social housing, one of the highest levels anywhere in the country. So that's why we've built more houses and encouraged more houses in Leeds over the last decade because we sort of get that equation and we want to do the things we really care about to be that compassionate city we want to be 
then we've got to make sure the economy is growing. What are you seeing in terms of how people's lives are being affected by the housing crisis that we'll, we all know we're in? I think there are there are different effects on different groups of people. So I think we have a cohort of young people who are coming out of university, coming out of college and education, who are finding it increasingly difficult to be able to buy a house, find a deposit for a house, unless they have, you know, the bank of mum and dad and some family support. So that is leading to a position where you have, if you're in your 20s or your 30s and you're living in a place like Leeds, the people who have come from better off families are okay. It's still challenging for them, really challenging because it's it costs a lot for the deposit and everything. But those who don't have those opportunities are just not able to get on the housing ladder in the, the way they used to. So the, the average age of when you can become a first-time buyer is going up and up and up. And there's another group of people who are struggling to pay their bills and their rent and facing the threat of eviction. More and more people are running into problems where they're going to be evicted or they're going to be in huge levels of debt if they don't change what they're doing. So we work with thousands of people in the city to try and realign that and get them into accommodation. Unlike many cities, particularly in London, there's there's huge numbers of people now in temporary accommodation in that situation. In Leeds, there's about 150 households in temporary accommodation. In other major cities, there are thousands of people in that situation. And, and if you can imagine what that's like, even for those 150 in Leeds, so you're living in a bed and breakfast, you don't know where you're going to be living in two or three days' time, your kids are going to a, a school, you, you're trying to get to work on a new bus route, and in three days' time, you might have to uproot the kids and change your bus route and change the way you're trying to hold down a job. Leeds is currently building around 500 affordable homes a year, short of their target of 1,000 a year. That's a combination of the private sector, housing associations and the council. As it has done elsewhere in the country, right to buy has eroded the stock of homes that people can afford. For individual families who did it, who were you know, had never had an aspiration to own their own home. It, it was life-changing for a lot of people. And, you know, that was something that was very, very positive for those individual families. The challenge, I think, is that if we could have used that receipt and kept it in the city, then it would have been a, a win-win. But the problem is that half of it goes back to the, to the coffers of the Treasury in London. And also, you know, there are there are examples of, you know, the, the, the way the market works is that somebody might buy a home off somebody who's bought a right to buy and it, it becomes a private rented home, you know, almost right next to a council house with a private renter charging, you know, 50% more rent than the council does for the, what, what is effectively the same house. The government announced last year that councils could keep 100% of their receipts from right to buy for 2023 and the next financial year to spend on building or buying homes to replace the ones sold. Isn't scrapping right to buy part of the answer? It's so politically charged to say scrap right to buy because it is on face of it such a popular policy. that. But I think, yes, radically reforming right to buy is definitely something that's needed. At the very least, allowing local councils to keep the receipt as long as they reinvest it in council housing and I, allowing them to both buy 
existing stock, not just have to build it from scratch, is a really simple way that you could change the thing overnight. So why, as a country, aren't we building enough? Here's Cara Pichitti again. Some of it is probably money. The affordable homes programme, the government's committed, I think, £11.5 billion over 2021 to 2026. So there is, there is funding there. But there's also been a shift in how we provide social housing. It's not just through councils and housing associations as it was in the past. Now it's increasingly through councils requiring developers to provide affordable homes as part of private residential estates. That's something called a Section 106 agreement which is where developers negotiate with councils to provide schools and other local amenities in exchange for planning permission. It's increasingly been used to provide affordable housing. This has had two consequences. The first is that because some of the provision of social housing has been effectively privatised, it's a lot more tied to the boom and bust of the housing market than it used to be. Obviously, when the market slumps, private house builders stop building. But when more of house building was funded by government grant, it could keep going through a slump. The second consequence is that private sector developers get to renegotiate how much affordable housing they're going to provide. That might happen when market circumstances change, as Cara Pachiti explains. I think the other thing that is slightly trickier if you are relying on private developers to deliver some of that social housing through things like Section 106 and you're asking them, you're saying you're doing this big development, you also need to contribute by building some affordable housing. What we do see is that a lot of them kind of push back and say, well, it's not viable for me to build this amount of units or social housing and that being negotiated down. So part of the story, I think, is also that negotiation between private developers and and councils really, resulting in fewer units being built when we are seeing big private developments as well. The government is planning to replace the current system of development contributions with a new locally determined infrastructure levy. This will support funding for local infrastructure, including affordable housing, as well as things like schools, GP surgeries, green spaces and transport links. Delivering the number of affordable homes the country needs requires two changes to the current system, Tom Reardon argues. Both would involve moving power out of Westminster to regions and cities. He wants councils to be given more resources so they can build more houses themselves and staff up their planning departments so that applications are dealt with more swiftly. And he also wants to see a change to the way national infrastructure projects are planned to remove some of the risk that private developers face. So, for example, instead of the stop start around HS2, and in our case, a tram, where we've had national governments of successive um, three decades telling us they're going to build a big project here and then not deciding to do so, give those responsibilities to the mayors, the mayoral combined authorities, for infrastructure, they will work with us then and we'll be able to know what's happening over a 5, 10, 20-year period so that we get things done and we build things in the right place next to the infrastructure. So if everyone's clear that we need to build more houses, how do we make it happen? Here's Matt Downey of Crisis. Obviously, you you can't just suddenly flip a switch and make that true. It's something that requires consistent long-term planning. The planning system itself needs to be changed to allow this to happen more easily. Local councils, housing associations and others need the funding and and quite often the the sort of policy certainty to make this happen. Since the last general election, the government has made a series of proposals around overhauling the planning system. The proposals have varied quite a bit, though. There hasn't been a lot of policy certainty. 
That's partly a reflection of the shifts in government thinking between three UK prime ministers. And there have been seven different housing ministers since February 2022. Charlie Nunn, chief executive of Lloyd's Banking Group, says it's about partnership. One of the real insights for me as we've called for this new million new homes is the availability of land, I don't think, is the big constraint. And I, the availability of capital, I don't think, or money isn't the big constraint. It's how can we put it to work in a way that is focused on social housing and which works for how the housing associations and the local authorities manage their finances. And that's why bringing together participants from house builders, housing associations, local authorities and government, we think is at the heart of really untapping this and unlocking the pace at which we build social homes. In the next episode, what the future of social housing could be like and how we can get there. You've been listening to Making Sense of Social Housing, supported by Lloyd's Banking Group, with me, Jeevan Varsager. It's produced by Adrian Bradley, and the executive producer is Jasper Corbett. We hope you're enjoying this series. Make sure to follow the feed so you don't miss another episode, and check out Tortoise Media's award-winning investigative series while you wait for next week's episode. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.